Before we begin, this episode talks about the sexual abuse of minors and may be upsetting to some listeners. And one time, one time before I left, I remember I was in the kitchen and he was sitting on top of the counter in the kitchen. Because sometimes he would talk to me. This is Juan Alessi, Jeffrey Epstein's longtime house manager and driver in Palm Beach. He's talking about his former boss, who called him John instead of Juan. And he complained about his back. I says, Jeffrey, says, you got to take it easy. All these women, how can you do it? He says, they're gonna, you're going to be in trouble as a man. You, how yeah. can you perform with so many people? Right. Right? And I says, one of these girls one day is going to get you in trouble. I told, I swear to God, one of these girls are going to get you in trouble. John, they only want money. That was his answer. They only want money, John. Juan worked for Epstein for 10 years and was in a perfect position to witness Epstein's massive sex abuse operation. But when I knocked on his door last February, he never talked about Epstein publicly. He says Epstein fired him after that conversation about the girls. I told him one time, says, one of these girls is going to get you in trouble, Jeffrey. Oh, wow. and then, I told, I swear to God. I'm Tara Palmieri, host of Broken, Seeking Justice. Epstein is dead, but according to dozens of his victims, many individuals helped him run his sex trafficking operation, and in some cases, took part in abusing girls. Only Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's right-hand woman, has been indicted. No one else has been prosecuted or gone to jail. I've spent the last 10 months with some of Epstein's survivors as they fight to hold these people accountable. In order to get justice, both on a personal and legal level, they need people like Juan Alessi to come forward and speak about what they witnessed. I spent weeks with Virginia Roberts Jufre. I traveled with her all over the country to try to get Epstein's former employees to talk to her, to come out of the shadows and help her in her pursuit of justice. And it's been hard. Virtually every door Virginia knocks on is slammed in her face. Okay, so there's no, would you meet me somewhere for lunch? No. It's an uphill battle just for Virginia to have her existence acknowledged, let alone her accounts of abuse corroborated. Let's talk about Django 102, Virginia Roberts. Do you know Virginia Roberts? So she's again who? That was Jeffrey Epstein, claiming he didn't even know Virginia's name. Can you spell it? Common spelling, Virginia, like the state. Can you spell it for me, please? What Virginia really wants is for someone who is there to say, I remember you. What Epstein did was wrong and horrible, and I'm sorry that was your childhood. She isn't looking to sue anyone else. She simply wants acknowledgement of the abuse. Jeffrey's dead, and, you know, we're not coming after you criminally. We're just coming after you for answers to help. So when Virginia and I showed up exhausted at Juan Alessi's house in Florida, I was not exactly optimistic about him letting us in. Okay. Uh, what are we hitting? Hit the A. A. And then, in what felt like a miracle, he told us he was buzzing us in. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, we're, we're on our way. Okay. Thank you. Is that him? 
Okay. Oh, he's letting us park. Great. Oh, I love his dogs. Beautiful house. Nice Lexus in the driveway. This was the first time he and Virginia had seen each other since their Epstein days. After a long embrace with Virginia, Juan sees my recording equipment and asks me to shut it off. So I do. Juan's home is well manicured, a cream mini mansion with a regal feel on a golf course. His home has high ceilings, marble floors, and oil paintings, most painted by Juan. He's hung a self-portrait, which he says he painted in Paris. His work is set in gilded frames. Juan asks us to sit down on a tufted couch across from his wife, Maria, who also worked for Epstein as a housekeeper. They have two small dogs who are excited to see us and barked a lot. Juan is wearing a gray polo shirt and shorts with sandals. He's got a support band around his right knee. His wife, Maria, is wearing a white polo shirt and chino pants. They seem anxious to see Virginia and nervously repeat how surprised they are to see her. Juan says he remembers the day when he met Virginia. He was driving Glane Maxwell, doing something he says she often did, roaming the streets of Palm Beach looking for pretty girls who could become masseuses for Epstein. She spotted Virginia at the country club Mar-a-Lago. And sure enough, Ghislaine told Juan, stop, I have to talk to this girl. Juan waited for a long time while Ghislaine tried to persuade Virginia to become Epstein's masseuse. He remembers sweating, sitting in the convertible. Juan says Virginia was so skinny and pretty, he knew that she was just the right type. That day, he told his wife Maria, just you wait, you're going to see this girl this afternoon. The story about Ghislaine is exactly what Virginia has been looking for. I can see the appreciation and excitement on her face. Here is a first-person witness to her time with Maxwell and Epstein, who is willing to talk about it. After 15 minutes of conversation, I take out my recorder and ask him tentatively, will he please agree to be recorded? I am shocked when he says okay. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I asked Juan to start from the beginning. What was it like working for Jeffrey Epstein? At first, Juan says it was a regular job working for a regular guy. He started working for Epstein in the early 90s, before Epstein was wildly rich, before he had all the homes, the jets, an island. Epstein was just one of Juan's clients. I went to work for him as a maintenance. I, do, I was doing maintenance in the house, and I did repairs in maybe 30 homes in Palm Beach. Jeffrey was a normal guy. Uh, he didn't have the money. That money came like that. After the money started flowing, Juan saw Epstein's life start to change. Juan was hired to work there full-time. Ghislaine Maxwell came into the picture. 
girls started visiting in large numbers. And Juan found himself living under a regime of silence and secrecy. This didn't happen in 1990. This happens in 2002, 2003, 2000. After that. Yes, it was visits. It was girls. He likes massages from the day one that I met him. Did you? Did he ever say to you, like, don't you dare say anything about this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was not supposed to talk to the guest. I was not supposed to talk to Virginia. Yeah. Not talk. How did you guys get to no know each other then? Well, you come to the house. She says, hi, hi, John. And that was it. I was not supposed to talk. Any conversations in the pool or in the house or in the kitchen, nothing, no talking. I was not allowed. I was not allowed to discuss any. I was not allowed to interrupt the conversation. It took a while for Juan and Virginia to get to know each other because none of the staff was allowed to interact. But what blossomed was a bond, kind of like the bond that forms between prisoners of war. It reminded me of what Virginia said about her relationship with Epstein's chef, Adam Perry Lang, who we talked about last episode. Virginia's friendships with Epstein's staff were a big part of her life back then. She looks back at them fondly, almost like a silver lining, if there can be one. Juan and Virginia both explained that these staff-to-staff friendships had to be conducted in secret, out of Ghislaine's sight. And like unhappy employees everywhere, they bonded over a shared dislike of the boss, Ghislaine. They speculated ad nauseum about her dysfunctional relationship with Epstein. That's what brought them together. And they still can't make sense of it all. That, uh, uh, how you call, relationship between Epstein and her, I never understood. Me neither. You know, I asked him once. I asked Maxwell. Uh, I said, so, I don't What are you doing? I told her many times. I said, because she would sometimes come out crying in the car for me to drive, right? And I said, Ghislaine, why are you doing this? Why are you staying with this guy? I hate him. I hate him. But John, but I, I can't leave. I said, why? You have money. Yeah. She had money. Yeah, she had money. Right? Why are you not leaving? That uh, relationship? It was confusing. It's fascinating to learn that even the people right there, first-hand witnesses, found Epstein and Ghislaine's relationship as baffling as we all do. Why did Ghislaine do all the things she did for Epstein? Were they in love? Was it for the money? Did she want to do it? A few weeks after we talked with Juan, Ghislaine seemed to provide an answer to some of these questions. She sued Epstein's estate, claiming that Epstein promised in writing to always provide for her financially. That now includes paying her legal fees and personal security costs for any claims from the dozens of women who say she recruited for Epstein. But those claims obscured some interesting information. When Ghislaine was later arrested on July 2nd, A government filing said that they thought she had up to $20 million at her disposal. Despite almost all of the victims referring to Ghislaine's role in Epstein's scheme, she has claimed that she had no knowledge of his crimes. Juan's willingness to speak to Virginia meant a lot to her. Even more than just opening his door, he seemed to believe her and expressed seemingly heartfelt sympathy for what she went through. I feel so sorry that this jerk was... At the end, abusing little girls. That's sickening, sickening. He could have all the women in the world. He could buy a woman a day, an adult woman. Right? No. He went and abused these girls. That's sickening. 
Virginia looked downright triumphant when she heard Juan acknowledge that she and others had been sexually abused as children. This moment, this admission, was what she had flown all the way from Australia to hear. And Juan's retelling of his conversation, where he warned Epstein about what was going on. One of these girls is going to get you in trouble, Jeffrey. That story seemed to indicate that Juan knew something troubling was happening. Yet, despite all of this, Juan insisted to us that he had no idea about the sexual abuse happening in the house. That he really wishes he could help Virginia out, but he just didn't see anything. I wish I could help them more. I wish I can be more help for these girls, but I never saw. My job was to take care of the house, take care of the food, open the doors, make sure the guests were treated right, and that's it. So Juan maintains that he kept his head down and just did his job. It was disturbing to hear and unsatisfying. If this were an ordinary house, maybe... But the thing about working for Epstein is that doing your job involves some pretty out-of-the-ordinary things. Doing your job meant driving Ghislaine Maxwell around to recruit young girls to massage your boss. Doing your job meant calling those young girls to come visit Epstein. He would come to me and say, John, call this girl. Call call them. Allison, call. It was hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds of girls that I have a list and it says, call this, call this, call Joanne, call Judy, call uh, Nicole, call... Like so many names. So many girls. Adults. They were adults. And they were massaged. How do you know they were adults, though? I don't know. Doing your job meant walking by photos of very young, naked girls. But what about all the pictures of the girls naked everywhere? They were hot. And that was Ghislaine taking those pictures. It's all very confusing and, frankly, frustrating. While Juan has always been cautious about discussing what he saw at Epstein's, he's changed his story over the years. A lot. Fifteen years ago, he was a lot more open with investigators than he was with Virginia that day. In 2005, when the police first began investigating Epstein, the police called Juan. We were able to get a recording of that call. What kind of investigation is it? Well, I, I am apprehensive to talk about anything because... Uh, uh, I can go meet you in person if you'd like. You know, this is something that I, I really will not like to be involved if I'm not involved with it. Uh, uh, I prefer not to be involved. I've been out of the job for three years, so... I, I understand I that, but you may hold some information which... Uh, would assist me in this case. Okay. Well, before, you know, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no to you because uh, that would be dumb. But uh, I would prefer to comfort this with, a, with an attorney, with my attorney, and see what he says. Absolutely. You have very... I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get in trouble. Or I don't want to get sued by Mr. Epstein or by his company or, or anything in style. Eleven days later, Juan was interviewed by that same detective, Joseph Riccari. You'll hear more about him in our next episode. According to a police report, Juan told Riccari that towards the end of his employment, the masseuses appeared younger and younger. When asked how young, Juan said they appeared to be 16 or 17. Juan told Riccari the massages took place in Epstein's bedroom or bathroom. He knew this because he often had to set up massage tables. 
Juan stated that towards the end of his employment, he would have to wash off a vibrator and a long rubber penis that were left in the sink after the massage. He said that the bed would almost always have to be made after the massages, suggesting that the massage was not limited to the massage table. Juan's story has been changing ever since that first interview with law enforcement. Years later, in 2009, Juan gave a deposition where he said he was certain that one of these girls was under the age of 18. He concluded she was a minor because he dropped her off at high school. Then, in 2016, the prominent defense lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, obtained a sworn statement from Juan. He's the same Alan Dershowitz who Virginia claims sexually abused her, a claim which Dershowitz denies, saying he has never met her. He also says he has proof that Virginia is lying, which he's included in his book, Guilt by Accusation. That evidence includes emails between Virginia and a reporter, a recording of a call between Dershowitz and one of Virginia's childhood friends, Dershowitz's own records of his whereabouts during the period of Virginia's allegations, and a phone call he had with Virginia's lawyer, David Boyes, plus Virginia's own unpublished memoir. Connie Brock, who examined similar evidence for a story in The New Yorker, was only able to conclude that Dershowitz's material often led to further disputes. Now, Virginia and Dershowitz are suing each other for defamation. Juan's 2016 statement for Dershowitz is notable in that his story has changed from what he told the police seven years earlier. In this second statement, Juan said he never knew of any masseuse being under the age of 18. The masseuses were apparently mostly middle-aged. Some were men. One was named Olga. And yet here is Juan, sitting in front of us, now saying that he knew that Virginia was underage. Not only that, but that there was another girl who visited Epstein who was also underage. That was the only two girls that I saw that were underage. Virginia and Mm -hmm. If they were abused, I didn't know. Virginia was 16, and the other victim was 14 at the time. We agreed not to use her name. There were another girl that is in my statements that she was young, but she was, uh, um, she was not a massage therapist. She, it was The dogs start barking like crazy, and Virginia leans forward. But she came to the house with her mother, and her mother would leave her there. I don't know if she did anything with him. Maybe you know, but uh, she was abused too. We were flabbergasted. Despite Juan's statement just minutes earlier that he was unaware of any sexual abuse happening in the house, he was admitting that this 14-year-old girl that he drove to and from the house had been abused. But how does he know this if he never saw anything? And she was young, probably younger than you. Juan would drive the 14-year-old to and from Epstein's house. Every day that she came to the house, I had to drive her home. And she never mentioned to me Never spoke a word. It's possible that none of the victims ever told Juan about the abuse. And so, in that sense, Juan can claim he didn't know anything. If that's the test for right and wrong, then Juan may have passed. But is that really our test? Do we live in a world where if a 14-year-old doesn't voluntarily come forward, it's okay to look the other way, ignoring all the signs staring you in the face? Virginia tried to get Juan to admit that he did indeed see even more than he was admitting to. At one point in the interview, Virginia confronted Juan about seeing her naked and paying her money. He said he didn't recall any of it. I swear to God, Virginia, is my God, never saw you 
naked. I didn't even know you. I saw other girls, adult, not you, or Virginia, um, she recalls in her in her memoir and her affidavit that um, you often paid her. Did you? Virginia? Yeah. I don't remember paying you. Just from the black bag. No, I never took money from the black bag. I have my own money. Mm-hmm. I had my petty petty cash. Had you had like a little TV oh, in it, you yeah, behind right. the kitchen, and then I would come downstairs. Sometimes I'd have to put Epstein to bed in Palm Beach, and he would go off to sleep, and then I'd have to come downstairs and you know get get the money. It wasn't like you. You, yeah. I swear, it's not incriminating. I never remember. I, in matter of fact, yeah. that can be a record. They should have it at the office because I used to send. When I pay somebody, yeah. they will have to sign it, it sign it, and, uh, and, and I will send uh, to New York because wow. they check me up every penny they went out of there. I have of to. Of course, I have to. Very tight on his money, right? Every tight. Yeah. And I will have to send the office a statement of this girl pay. Here's the signature. Here's the check. Copy of the check. Yeah. I will make copies of the check. If it's qua- if it's cash, you will have to sign it for me. Yeah. I don't know if you did or no, but I cannot remember paying okay. you. We talked to Juan back in February, but in May, the British tabloid The Mirror released a story about Juan where they interviewed him about this exact thing, the payments, and his story changed. The article says Juan admitted to paying Virginia and other girls, but they didn't realize what the money was really for. Juan is quoted saying, I used to go to the bank, withdraw $10,000, I'd pay them out of petty cash and fill out a receipt. So what's going on in all of this? Why is Juan changing his story so much? Why is he now denying seeing things that he's admitted to seeing before? Any good lawyer could cross-examine him based upon the statements he's made. I called Spencer Coven, a lawyer who has represented a number of Epstein's victims, to explain how Juan's changing story may become an issue. And when there's conflicting statements, it tends to lead one to believe that maybe the full story is not being told truthfully. Hmm. So um, he should be concerned. But again, if he cooperates, and he cooperates fully with authorities, then he could probably um, execute some kind of a deal. Hmm. Could making untruthful statements get him in legal trouble? Yes. Uh, As long as those statements are made within the context of a legal proceeding, like a deposition or some other sworn testimony, if we see, uh, for example, Ms. Maxwell's charges, two of her charges are for perjury. And that perjury was lies that she made during a civil deposition. But making untruthful statements to the press, is that consequential at all? It's not. Um, It happens all the time in major news media outlets, unfortunately, and even by politicians nowadays. But uh, those are not criminally actionable. What would a prosecutor need to charge him? I mean, he could be charged with similar counts like Ms. Maxwell was recently charged with, such as conspiracy. Um, even if he wasn't engaged in the actual acts themselves, if there was a conspiracy to cover up those acts or to assist in those acts in any regard, then he doesn't need to be an active participant. He could be a portion of that conspiracy. But the non-prosecution agreement in Florida has been upheld so far. So if he is actually a co-conspirator, is he protected? Um, I think that's a legal question that'll have to be fought and dealt with later. There are a number of co-conspirators specifically identified in the non-prosecution agreement. And then there's a vague general statement about any others. So uh, that'll be hashed out later. But I certainly don't think that that should stop 
the U.S. Attorney's Office from doing their job, which would be prosecuting the criminals that they feel committed these heinous acts. How valuable is he as a witness? I think he's certainly important as a corroborating witness for many other charges brought against other individuals like Ms. Maxwell. Frankly, I think he's more important to the government as a cooperating witness if he chooses to, to do so. Do you think that Juan is changing his story because he realizes that he may be in some sort of legal jeopardy? Without a doubt. I think that his story probably continually changes because he's seen what's been happening around him, which is the people he thought were untouchable, like Ms. Maxwell and Mr. Epstein, are getting arrested. So if those powerful people are being arrested, then, you know, there's no one around to protect him anymore. I didn't know all of this back in February. I was just shocked to hear some of the things Juan was saying. And then something even crazier happened right in front of us. Juan got a call. I think this is the FBI. Yeah, the FBI called in the middle of our conversation. Don't say a word. Hello? Hi, how are you? How are you doing? In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Virginia and I are staring at Juan, hardly able to believe that of all the times the FBI would call, that would be at the exact moment we're talking to him. We were spooked. Were they following us? The timing was uncanny. From Juan's end of the conversation, it seems like he's surprised too. He said he hadn't heard from the FBI since last July. And today, of all days, they were calling. How are you? I thought this was over. I thought he was dead and he was over. It's finally over. I guess it's not. We hear the agent ask Juan to do a follow-up interview. And they both agree to talk next week. Give me a call back anytime. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. As the FBI again. So an investigation was still moving along, in some fashion. But after our conversation, it made me wonder if Juan could ever be a reliable witness. Why would he admit to some things and deny others? Beyond legal repercussions, he could be protecting his reputation. This is understandable, but my gut sense is there is something more at play here. If this were a legal or reputational issue, why speak at all? I think what's happening here is that Juan is revealing how people, at least some people, allowed themselves to continue to work as part of what they might have known in their guts was a massive operation to sexually abuse girls. It goes by a simple name, denial. You see each discrete fact, but you just deny the obvious conclusion. Because not denying it would mean you'd have to give up a job that pays a fortune or admitting to yourself that you are standing by something very, very wrong. But denial doesn't always work. Because sometimes you are faced with something more compelling. Something like sitting on a sofa facing Virginia, a woman you've known since she was a girl. So he sees all these girls coming over every day, girl after girl. But he tells himself they're just massaging Epstein. 
Epstein really likes massages, and for some reason likes them from teenage amateurs. Of course it's absurd, but that's the whole friggin' point. The only people who are going to work in that house are those who have this mental capacity for profound denial. I can't say any of this is clearly true. I'm not inside Juan's head. I've tried repeatedly to reach Juan since the day we went to his house, but I haven't heard back. Even amidst the denials, Juan places some of Epstein's more prominent friends at the house during a period of time when there was a constant inflow of girls, very young ones. I was interested to hear if you remembered seeing Alan Dershowitz. He did. Alan Dershowitz was many times at the house, many times at the house. With children or girls, young girls? No, 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 no. I never saw children with her. This is one point where his story hasn't changed. Juan has consistently said he never saw Dershowitz around young girls, and that Dershowitz had never been at Epstein's house at the same time as Virginia. Dershowitz acknowledges that he has been to Epstein's properties, including his residences in New York and Palm Beach. He says that his time there was limited to public areas of the homes, and that he never saw anything inappropriate, including photos of naked girls. He's also said that he never observed Epstein with any underage girls. If he had, he told us that he would have reported it to the authorities. Juan also remembers Prince Andrew, but says he never saw him with girls. Prince Andrew was uh, at the house maybe two or three times when I was there. And he was a always polite and very nice guy, very nice guy. He was the only guy who left as a tip. Virginia is sitting here listening to all of this. Juan's inconsistencies, the FBI calling, and it gives me a sense of her life for the past decade. She's trying to reveal the truth. She's trying to get witnesses to come forward. But each of those witnesses is deeply problematic, either because of their unwillingness to speak, like Adam Perry Lang, or because of their utter unreliability, like Juan Alessi. And yet, Virginia remains positive through all of it. She's just so grateful, despite Juan's contradictions and denials. And in a way, her relentless optimism is inspiring. As we left Juan's house, he apologized to her again. Virginia, I feel so bad what happened to you, but I feel so good that I see you so great now. So good, so good that you make up your life, that you have a family, and try to nail the son of a bitch. Absolutely. This has been a beautiful reunion. I mean it. Thank you so much. Thank you you for opening your doors and your heart to me. You were the person I never imagined it would be in my house. I thought you hate me. Well, when I told these ladies here, we have to stop off and see why. Let me give you my It was so worth it because I said, no, these are good people. Why would she hate you, though? I thought, you know, that she would have blamed me by not doing something. I thought that these girls would go against me, or they would have said, oh, John, John knew it. I didn't know it. I didn't not know it. Come here, you. There's no forgiving, because you were an amazing person uh, to honey, me then, an amazing person now. I am now. so glad so to see you. you as a full-grown woman and yes. beautiful. Thank you. Okay? Thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Thank Let you. Let your knee get better. Yeah. Well, thank you guys I so much. Oh, have okay. a wonderful night. You too. When we leave Juan's house, I feel tired and frustrated as we walk back to our car. We had come so close to getting a full, detailed account of life under Epstein, from one of the witnesses best positioned to see everything, at least everything at Epstein's Palm Beach house. And yet he kept denying that he knew anything substantial. 
Virginia, though, was elated. Um, how do you feel right now? I feel really happy. You know, I do feel like he had to protect himself in some ways, which is totally cool. I don't expect everybody to come full forward and say exactly what they saw, because that could incriminate them. Yeah, I mean, I was a little frustrated, to be honest. Um, I tried probing him on, like, how did you not see girls naked? Like, Virginia writes in her affidavit that she, you paid her, that you, she was often naked around there. And he was like, I saw nothing, I saw nothing. The sheer fact that he puts Dershowitz there, the sheer fact he puts Andrew there, even though he says he didn't see Andrew do something wrong, he's had to set up all these massage tables upstairs. What were these massages about? We know they weren't just about she ought to, you know? She's talking about Prince Andrew of Britain right there. He's had to step back from royal duties because of his links to Epstein. He denies having any sexual contact with Virginia. And what he means is, like, his heart is good. He couldn't do shit about it. He feels horrible about it. Um, but at least he took us in and, and at least let us have a convo. It wasn't all bad, just put it that way. So you're just happy that he's willing to engage? Yeah, very much so. And even though, even if you're only willing to admit 10% of what you know there, that 10% can help so many other people. That's, that's fair. That is fair. There's I mean, a part of me that's like, he was lying. Like, yeah. he was lying. Yeah. He knew. He's, he was out with Ghislaine hunting for masseuses. I mean, yeah. it's just... And though he saw me, and he's like, he went, goes back to his wife and says, you watch, this one's going to come back to the house. We have to go between the fine lines of um, what's truth and what's not. And for him, that's as much truth as he was willing to give. So even though it was only a very small percentage of truth, we still have to be grateful. And maybe down the track, as things go on, I, th I think he's seriously afraid of the FBI, like, because he did see all this stuff. She might be thrilled that Juan's talking, but Virginia still has clear, painful memories of those times when she needed Juan's help and didn't get it. Anyone? I cried in the car on the way home. I still remember crying silently to myself. I was scared. My eyes were tearing up. He didn't say one word to me on the trip home. Now, it doesn't make him like the worst person in the world because here he is wanting to help and talk. Could he have helped more? Could he have talked more? Yes. But it's the beginning of a dialogue. So I'll take that as a plus. Right. I mean, I did think to myself, I, I don't mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I didn't want to ruin that moment for you because I know that it's so hard to get people to talk. So just to have a, somebody let you into your house, their house and like, is a big thing, but I, yeah, for me, I was just like, yeah, I don't believe that you didn't, didn't know what was happening. You admitted that you were cleaning off dildos. Yeah. Like, what the heck do you think? Why, why would, why would Ghislaine go looking for new masseuses and come home with the prettiest, youngest girl she found? Yeah. Girls that weren't even masseuses. Girls that were underage and hadn't even finished high school. Right. So, yeah, there's a point where he, he had to try to stop himself from telling the truth, which you could see. And then there's just no point in pushing the truth any, or the, the asking for truth any further because he wasn't going to, he obviously wasn't going to say what he knew. But he said what he knew to the extent that he felt comfortable with. And, and for that, I'm grateful. This is, this is as good as it gets. And I'm okay with that, Juan. That, that I just, I, I'm grateful that you invited me into your home and hugged me and treated me like a human being and want to help. So for that, I'm grateful. But he knew how young you were. Like, that was pretty clear. That was the one thing I take away from all that was, like, 
whether he knew there was abuse or not, he knew that you were very young. Yeah. He, he did remember that. And me and for some reason, we stick out in his mind. Although we all know there's lots and lots and lots of underage girls. Um, yeah, that That's just something he's going to have to live with until the day he dies. You know, I, I think it's sad. Maybe as time goes on and more comes out, then maybe he will feel f okay to come out. After the break, how Virginia led the charge to collect evidence against Jeffrey Epstein at a time when he still seemed invincible. Every now and then, spending time with Virginia and other victims of Jeffrey Epstein, I find myself overwhelmed, emotionally exhausted. It's so much. And then I realized they've been going through this for decades. They were abused, and they kept telling their story, and nobody seemed to care. It's only been a year and a half since this has been a big story. They spent most of those years struggling to get anybody to listen. Which makes it even more remarkable that Virginia is still at it. I could barely stand 10 days of knocking on doors hearing no, hearing those absurd denials. Virginia has been actively hearing that for 10 years. Has she ever been able to really get anyone, though? I put that question to Brad Edwards, a lawyer who represents many of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And maybe that's why she keeps going. Sometimes, she wins. Virginia has been central to the many fights against Epstein, both in civil and criminal courts. Not because she's involved in every case, she's not but because she's always ready to go on the record and speak truth to power. Back when Edwards first started working on the case, he couldn't get anybody to talk, any witnesses or even any victims to come forward and talk publicly. That was until he talked to Virginia. Uh, I remember the first day she came into my office. She was like, Let, let's, let's go get everyone. You know, a, a, di a different kind of attitude, not... Not like other clients where it was, uh, okay, you're going to issue subpoenas. She said, let's, let's just go get these people. I said, what do you mean? She's like, listen, I, I was part of their dysfunctional family for a two or three year period of time. Let's just go to New York and I'll just get them to come cooperate. I said, you really don't understand. I mean, these people are not going to cooperate like that. She said, come on, let's just get on a plane. So I thought, you know, I, I've never actually had a client like this before, you know, where, where she's like, I'll just take on the world and, and come hang out with me. And I have a very take on the world kind of attitude, too. So I go, all right, she's a breath of fresh air. So we get on an airplane and we come up to New York. They had some other meetings scheduled, but Virginia knew who she wanted to track down. The longtime housekeeper of Epstein's Upper East Side home. She was confident he still worked at 9 East 71st Street for Epstein. She told Edwards, I'll get him to come out and he'll just tell us everything. He knows it all. He's going to he's going to tell you all of this as if it was going to happen right in the middle of the street. And she's so brave and has so much courage. And it's like nothing's going to stand in my way, which, you know, who doesn't love that? Edwards waited for Virginia across the street from Epstein's house. He actually hid behind a car. Epstein already thought of him as an enemy. And Virginia was nervous about what would happen if Epstein saw the two of them and figured out they were working together. Uh, hey, these are two people who could destroy my life, and now they've teamed up. We're going to get, like, killed right in the middle of the street. So, so she, like, walks up to the door, like, bangs on, you know, that big, that big door. And uh, I'm 
like looking from across the street thinking, what kind of liability is this? Her husband tells me, hey, don't let her do anything crazy. And now, she, <laughs> now she's like banging on this this guy's door who I know is a, a evil, powerful person. What do I do when she just walks in the house? Like, now what? So she bangs on the door and there's a female that comes to the door. Brad can see Virginia talking to the woman who appears to be Epstein's staff. Virginia asks her to see the house manager, calling him an old friend. The woman disappears into the house. And comes back out, let's say five minutes later, and says, um, he, can't, he can't talk to you. And she says, well, when can you talk to me? I'll just stay here all day. But she doesn't care. Mm. And I said, he's not going to be able to come out. So she says, I'm Virginia Roberts. This happened to me. I need him to be on the good side. He's a good guy. You know, I always thought he was a good guy. The house staff slams the door in her face. The conversation is over. You know, that, that's kind of the response that I expected because I had been litigating with him for a while. She comes over and she has this look of, like, she's so perplexed. She's like, I can't believe they won't let me in. You know, these are all his disciples in his house, and you basically tried to infiltrate him by, by just bum-rushing his house. You know, you're just going to walk right in and take him out. Um, she almost believed, I think, that she was just going to accumulate all of the staff and they were going to go up and just put him in handcuffs and drag him out of the house, you know? So, so then she told me, um, look, why don't we just go talk to all the girls that he has at 301 East 66th Street, the stash houses? But then we went there. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we went there and, and, and she starts reeling off all of the apartment numbers that Jeffrey owned there where he kept all the girls and tells the bellman, bring this person down, that person down. And he said, I can't even tell you that they live here. And she's like, I know that they live here. You know, she's just this, like, fireball that is ready to go, you know, mm-hmm. get these people. Which, you know, you've met Virginia. Right. There's nobody that has more credibility than somebody who's willing to go directly to their house and call them out. Next week, Ghislaine Maxwell. She's still in jail in New York, waiting for trial. But notably, not for anything to do with her time with Epstein in Florida. How Ghislaine Maxwell ended up being charged with crimes a decade earlier. That's next week on Broken, Seeking Justice. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual violence, there is help available. Search for RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or go to their website at rainn.org. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by Three Uncanny Four Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel, with help from Jack Panyard, and reporting from Emily Saul. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Parker Henry is our fact checker, and Rachel B. Doyle is our editor. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag BrokenSeekingJustice. Follow me at Tara Palmieri. Follow Julie Brown at JKB Journalist. And you can rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Tara Palmieri.